Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Well, good morning. It is good to see each one of you uh, in, in worship this morning. Welcome in Jesus' name. And as uh, Pastor Lloyd mentioned uh, before, it is Reformation Sunday today, more than 500 years ago. Uh, Martin Luther rediscovered the simple message of the gospel. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. And uh, I'm not going to talk a whole lot about that this morning. Uh, the back of your bulletin actually has a very good article uh, uh, if I can find it, written by our, uh, the editor of our Lutheran ambassador, uh, Pastor Paul Nealon. So I'd encourage you to read that at some point. If my sermon is boring enough and you want to read that, I will, <laughs> I will let you. I, I won't judge you for that. But give that a read sometime. Uh, it's very encouraging there. And if you are uh, joining us today, just joining us today, welcome. We've been working our way through Peter's first letter, his first epistle, and as Peter wrote to uh, Christians, he wrote to Christians who were, who were scattered um, throughout the, the, the known world at that time because of persecution. And in 1 Peter, we, we've come to a lot of challenging passages, and we've also come to some passages that have some great blessing for us. Uh, some of the challenging passages that uh, Lloyd and I have preached through, and actually Pastor Lloyd's had more of the challenging passages than I've had the, <laughs> the ones that have great blessing. Um, uh, we, we talked about the, a wife's submission to her husband. Uh, that was kind of challenging. Uh, we talked about Christ's descent into hell something that you all confessed in the Apostles' Creed, and we talked about what that means. Uh, we've talked about predestination and election. Uh, again, some challenging things for us to wrestle with. But again, there have been some great blessings as we've worked our way through First Peter, uh, the reality that we have been born again to a living hope through Christ's resurrection. The reality that in Christ we have become his own chosen people for his own possession. And the blessing that we, like living stones, are being built up into God's temple. We are the temple of the Lord. And our sermon text for this morning has some great blessings as, as well as some challenging realities. And since the text is a bit longer um, this morning, I'm, I'm going to look at it in two different sections. First, we'll tackle verses 7 through 11, and then we'll look at 12 through 19. Uh, if you're able, uh, as I read Scripture, would you mind standing out of respect for the word of the Lord? Again, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, reading in Jesus' name. Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. 
Amen. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, again, I thank you for this morning and for the chance to come away uh, and rest a while here in your house and with your people. And Father, there are lots of things going on in our, in our lives, in our hearts. We have busy schedules, full calendars. And we pray that we'd be able to take this morning and be refreshed and encouraged with your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. We are living in the last days. And this declaration has nothing to do with Israel and their war with Hamas or the potential of a third world war. We are living in the last days. Ever since Pentecost, the Christian church has believed that the last days are upon us. In his Pentecost sermon recorded in Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes the Old Testament prophet Joel, uh, who said, In the last days it shall be that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter saw the events of, of Pentecost, the sending of the Holy Spirit to dwell on the individual believers as a, as a kickoff of the last days. And ever since then, the Christian church has been living in the last days. And because of that, Peter declares in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. That be kind of a sobering statement, isn't it? The end of all things. And as we look at that reality, that's going to guide us this morning, the end of all things being near. And as we, we do that, there are a couple of realities that help guide us. Uh, the first reality is that Christ's return is near. Christ's return is near. Paul told the church in Rome that Christ's return is nearer now than when we first believed. And the early Christians so firmly believed in Christ's return that they assumed that they would see it, that they would live to see that. They believed that it was so close that some said, well, if, if Christ is going to return so soon, what's the bother of going to work today or this week? Let's relax. Let's enjoy life. Let's not even bother with work. Paul had to remind the, the Thessalonians not to be lazy or idle on that account, but to work, not be unproductive. But the point of all of that is the believers uh, in, the, in the New Testament church, the early church, were so convinced that Christ was returning and returning soon. And yet here we are 2,000 some odd years later and we're still waiting for the return of the king. He tarries. But he is not late, he is not delayed, he will come back on the Father's timetable. It might take another 2,000 years for Christ to return, or it might be in the next five minutes. But he is coming, and he is coming soon. When exactly? We don't know, uh, but soon. That's all, all we can say. And... Uh, as uh, Aslan, the, the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, told Lucy, I call all times soon. <laughs> the second reality of the end being at hand is that your life is brutally short. Off the top of your head, without any mental math or calculations, how many weeks do you think the average person will live? Jot that number down. No math, no mental calculations. Assuming you live to be 80, Assuming you live to be 80, you will have roughly 4,000 weeks to live. Think about that, 4,000. It doesn't seem like a lot, does it? 4,000 weekends, 4,000 Monday mornings at the office. <laughs> Only 4,000 weeks. 
There's an author, his name is Oliver Berkman, and he put it this way. He said, your lifespan is absurdly, terrifyingly, and insultingly short. <laughs> way back in uh, 2018, uh, Pastor Lloyd and I preached through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we used a book called Living Life Backwards by author David Gibson as kind of an outline for that series. And I know many of you purchased that book as we went along through Ecclesiastes and as we studied Ecclesiastes, and that book became a, a top ten book for me. But the subtitle of Living Life Backwards is this, How Ecclesiastes Teaches Us to Live in Light of the End. And one of the main points in that book that Gibson makes throughout his book is that knowing our own end to be absurdly, terrifyingly, and insultingly near helps us to rightly orient our lives. The opening sentence of that book goes like this, I am going to die, he says, and it's not because I have cancer or a death sentence or anything like that, but he says, I am going to die he goes on to say, only a proper perspective on death provides a, a true perspective on life. And he goes on to say, death reorients us to our limitations as creatures and helps us to see God's good gifts right in front of us all the time. The end of all things, including your own life, is at hand. And like Christ's return, none of us know when our time to die will come. You might make it longer than the average 4,000 weeks, or your life might be cut way short of that. Today could be your final day. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, Peter says, you should orient your life, reorient your life in this manner. And he goes on to give four principles, four commands on how to live in light of the end. And I'll summarize the first one this way. Peter tells us to live disciplined lives. Look at verse 7 again. He says, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Living disciplined lives involves two aspects. First, he says, be self-controlled. And in this context, being self-controlled means that your sin doesn't have dominion over you. It doesn't have command over you. You don't give in to the whims of sin or its powerful temptations. You are in control of your own thought life, in control of your actions, in control of what you say. Being self-controlled means that you recognize the temptation to sin as it comes and you, and you ax it. You, you cut it down before it has time to take hold and lead you to sin. Someone once said that your own unique temptations require unique stewardship. This means that you know the sins that you struggle with. You know those triggers. You know those triggers to gossip, to lie, to be anxious, to lust. You know the, the triggers to arrogance and pride. You know you. And you know that you ought not to, through Jesus, do those things. And you ought to live a life of self-control, not giving in to those areas of sin. Be self-controlled. He also says, be sober-minded. Being sober-minded means that you think wisely about the issues at hand, whether they are the things in Scripture or the things in the news. Uh, one who is, is sober-minded is, is able to sift through the muck and the mire, uh, wade through the, the opinions of others and evaluate the facts as they are. Being sober-minded means that you don't just regurgitate the talking points of the cable news network or your favorite conspiracy theorists. 
One who is sober-minded is able to think logically through the teaching and the preaching of others, even myself, and compare it with Scripture. And being sober-minded means that we are not so lost in distraction or entertainment that we lose sight of reality and the things that are truly important. Brothers and sisters, Peter says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. And then he gives this reason. He says, for the sake of your prayers. The end of all things is at hand. And again, whether it's, it's on a global scale or our, our own deaths on a more personal scale, the reality that the end of all things is near can cause us to, to lose our heads, to give in to anxiety and fear. Yet prayer is the single best weapon that we possess that combats the lies of our enemy that he wants us to believe and the fear that he wants to instill in your life. Prayer rightly orients ourselves and our situation, placing us into his hands, giving control of our lives to him and not to us. Be disciplined. The second command that Peter gives as we seek to reorient our lives in light of the end is found in verse 8. He says, keep loving one another. Look at that again. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Love was to be the, the hallmark of a Christian. Jesus prayed for his disciples, for you and for I. And he said that the world would recognize us by our love how we sacrificially care for the needs of our neighbor. And Peter says he covers a multitude of sins. And this doesn't mean that our our love for one another somehow covers or pays for or makes up for our own sins or shortcomings in other areas. No, our our love can't earn us forgiveness or or help help our, our hearts get clean with the Lord. Here, Peter is talking about our relationships with fellow Christians. When we are wronged by others, we ought to be quick to forgive. Forgiving others means we don't hold their sins against them. We release them of those things that they've, that they've done against us. Forgiveness is an act of love, maybe even the supreme act of love. And so as we live in light of the end, the end of all things is near, we continue to sacrificially love one another. The third command then that Peter gives as we seek to reorient our lives in light of the end is found in verse 9. Show hospitality one to another without grumbling. Show hospitality. Uh, for us, hospitality uh, isn't so much of a, of a command in Scripture, but it's, a, it's an industry, right? Somebody who works in a hotel works in the hospitality industry. Uh, but for Peter and for other first century Christians, hospitality meant so much more than that. Uh, in general, the inns uh, of the day were unsafe and uncomfortable. So as, as a Christian traveled, especially the early Christian missionaries, as they traveled, they would often rely on lodging from fellow believers. Hospitality also worked itself out on a, on a weekly basis as the congregation would meet in homes. And because Christianity was still in its infancy, church buildings like the one we're in now uh, weren't established. And so the congregation needed somewhere to gather for worship, and homes were the logical place. Uh, The church in Rome gathered in the home of Priscilla and Aquila, 
The church in Colossae met in Philemon's home. The church in Laodicea met in the home of a gal named Nympha. And the church in Philippi most likely met in Lydia's house. As the church then in that city, the church that met in that house, as that church would grow, uh, they would soon become too big to meet in one place, in one house. They would plant a church in somebody else's house, in somebody else's home. And as the church grew, this progressed. Churches planting churches in the houses of believers. And this was the norm for the first 300 years of Christianity or so, as it was growing and spreading, and it still is the norm, actually, uh, in places where Christianity is illegal or strictly monitored, places like North Korea or Somalia or China, believers opening up their homes for the congregation to gather in. So what does hospitality look like today in in a very highly individualistic society with Airbnbs on every corner and hotels that are safe? In reality, quite simply, hospitality looks like opening up your home and doing life together. Uh, Before I came to serve here at Maranatha, Liz and I were in Arizona church planting. And we had five college-aged, we called them parish builders, uh, who had also moved to Arizona uh, to help the congregation and our sister congregation, Calvary, grow and and things of that nature. Parish builders... um, they got the joy of doing whatever we wanted them to do. <laughs> Whether it was teach Sunday school, lead the youth group, make bulletins, fold bulletins, whatever, help set up, tear down, play music, they got to do it all. They were the, the slaves of our congregations. <laughs> but we had a standing invitation with the parish builders for game nights on Monday nights and for pizza and movie on Friday nights. And those nights, they knew that the front door was unlocked. They could come in without knocking. And they would jump right in, uh, helping to make the pizza, helping doing dishes, helping to wipe down the, the supper, supper table after dinner. Uh, and if we had to put our kids, kids to bed early, they would just make themselves at home. Our house was, was far from perfect. It still is. <laughs> Odds are there are toys everywhere. There were probably dishes that hadn't been done from earlier in the day. Uh, a toddler was probably having a tantrum at that very moment. <laughs> but those parish builders entered into our mess. They helped us. We helped them. We did life together. And I, I mention that not to prop Liz or I up or to say we did it right and you all need to follow our example. <laughs> no, there were plenty of things that we did wrong or we could have done differently. Uh, but I think that those mistakes are part of hospitality. Your, your life doesn't have to be this Pinterest-perfect production. Uh, you, you don't have to have this immaculate level of cleanliness to invite people into your home. You simply need to be willing to invite people to do life together in your house. Show hospitality. The fourth command that Peter gives as we seek to reorient our lives in the light of of the end is found in verse 10. He tells us to continue to serve one another. As each of you has received a gift, he says, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. As you live in light of the end, you are to serve one another with the gifts that the Lord has given you. And here, Peter gives two examples of spiritual gifts, uh, encouraging words and encouraging deeds. These two, speaking and serving, are, again, by no means a complete list. You can find those, I think it's in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. But but the, the reality is that the Lord has given each one of you as believers a spiritual gift. 
And these gifts are, are different from your natural talents and abilities. Spiritual gifts have nothing to do with your talent on the field or, or a court, nor your smarts in a classroom or the boardroom, uh, nor your ability to work hard or the ability to sing or play an instrument. Those gifts are, are gifts of God, no doubt, but they aren't necessarily gifts of grace. Uh, some of the spiritual gifts in include things like teaching, wisdom, prophecy, speaking in tongues, leadership, discernment, exhorting, mercy, faith, healing, serving, speaking. <laughs> and maybe you don't know what your spiritual gift is. Maybe you don't know how to cultivate your spiritual gift. If that's you, I'd encourage you to talk with another believer, someone who knows you well. Ask them how you think the Lord has gifted you. They often see things that you might miss in your own life. And if they're not able to help, there are dozens of spiritual gift inventories online. You can fill out one of those, and they often help reveal how the Lord has gifted you. But each of you, as believers, has been given a spiritual gift. And these gifts are given not to build you up or help you promote your brand or your image, but these gifts are given so that you can use them to serve one another as we live in light of the end. Living in light of the end. And there's a second thing that we need to look at this morning. Um, not only are we to live in light of the end, in verses 12 through 19, Peter tells us how to live in light of suffering. Live in light of suffering. Look at these verses with me. I'll read them here, verses 12 through 19. He says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name." For it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel be? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. As we've gone through 1 Peter together, you've, you've probably picked up on this theme of suffering. Uh, during the first four chapters, the word suffer or suffering has been used 14 times by Peter. In addition to this theme of, of us Christians being exiles and all the suffering that's implied there, uh, the reality, Peter says, is that for Christians, suffering, for Christians, persecution is the norm. This is the, what is normal. And we need to recognize that persecution is the norm. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, knowing as if something strange were happening to you. And again, we need to be clear that Peter isn't talking about suffering in some generic way, right? It's, it's too cold for this time in October, how we suffer here in Minnesota. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about suffering as a consequence for doing wrong. He addressed that in verse 16. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler, things like that. If you sin and you suffer the consequences, you're getting your just desserts. The suffering that Peter is talking about is suffering 
on the account of Christ, for the sake of Christ. Suffering for the sake of Christ means being mocked or made fun of, being excluded, or maybe worse yet, beaten up or fired from your job, harassed, assaulted, or even killed simply because you are a Christian. And suffering on the account of Christ has been the norm from the early Christian church through today. Earlier this morning, Pastor Dale read from John's Gospel, and there we read the, do you call it a a promise, a prophecy, a prediction of Jesus uh, that his followers would suffer persecution on his account. And Jesus' words very quickly came true. As the church grew, so did persecution as well. At first, it was a localized persecution in um, Jerusalem there in Judea, but as Christianity spread, persecution followed. Under Emperor Nero, things began in earnest. A couple of weeks ago in Adult Sunday School, we read from a guy named Tachycus. He was a Roman senator in the early uh, 100s, and he records the persecution that Christians endured under Nero. Listen to this. Uh, Nero fastened the guilt for the fire of Rome. You see, there had been this great big fire in Rome. Rome was destroyed. Everybody was blaming Nero, but he said, no, it wasn't me. It was the Christians. And so Nero fastened the guilt of the fire in Rome on Christians, and he inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. He would cover them with the skins of beasts before they were thrown into the Colosseum. They were torn by dogs and they perished. They were nailed to crosses. They were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when the daylight had expired. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle. Think about that. The emperor having a garden party lighting Christians on fire, using them as human tiki torches. Could you imagine? Hmm. He he mingled with the people then in in dress as a a charioteer and often stood aloud riding on his carriage. Hence, even for criminals, and this is again a secular historian writing, he said, "Even even criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion for the Christians. For it was not, as it seemed, for the public good that these Christians were being tortured, but to glut one man's cruelty. Brutal, absolutely heinous. Peter and Paul were most likely killed under Emperor Nero. And persecution of Christians continued through the next generations. Emperors like Vespian and Titus and uh, Dominician all tried to stamp out Christianity in the early ages. Uh, but, but throughout the Christian church, we see examples of, of persecution as well. Uh, there was a guy by the name of John Huss. He was burned in the Middle Ages for preaching in his own language, not the language of the, the Roman church. John Wycliffe's body was burned for translating the Bible into English. And, and later, Luther was expelled and was under constant death threats for his teaching of, of, in Scripture and justification. And in the West, particularly here in the United States, the Christian church, we have enjoyed centuries that have been free from widespread persecution. That doesn't mean that we haven't been mocked here or there or made fun of for our beliefs. But on the whole, Christianity and Christian values and ethics, they've been the, they've been the norm. They've been the baseline. 
And I think, and maybe I, I could be wrong, but I think that the church is about to enter a time of greater persecution for the sake of Christ. It might begin to come subtly. You might get called a, a bigot for refusing to uh, affirm an improper pronoun. You might get labeled uh, as a part of the oppressive patriarchy because you oppose the slaughter of the preborn. You might get called a hater for not celebrating and affirming pride. But maybe the pressure will be a little bit more confrontational. Maybe the donations that you give to the church will no longer be tax-exempt. Maybe you'll get fired from your job for not working on a Sunday morning. Maybe you won't be able to pray in public before meals. Maybe the Bible will be banned from public places and you can't read it out loud. Maybe the church will be forced to violate her conscience by conducting weddings for people the scriptures say should not get married. How should we respond? Do we fold? Do we give in? Do we cave to the pressure of society? Or do we stand boldly for Christ? Brothers and sisters, let's boldly stand for Christ just as believers had for the last 2,000 years. Do not be surprised when the fiery trials come upon you. Be bold for Christ's sake. Be humble as well. We will suffer. And we'll suffer for Christ, Peter says, because Christ first suffered for us. In verse 13, we, re we read, Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Christ has suffered for you. He gave his life on the cross for you. He died in your place and on your behalf, taking your sin, taking your shame, taking your guilt and crediting it to his account. He suffered beatings, mockings, persecutions. He suffered the cross all for you. And I'm not just talking to you all, but I'm talking to you individually. Yes, for you, Christ died. He suffered for you. He loves you. He gave himself for you. That's the good news of the gospel that Luther rediscovered and that we get to preach and proclaim and to talk about. Christ suffered for you. And we get to share in that sufferings. And as a result, Peter says that we are refined in that process. Suffering refines us. Look again at verses 17 and 18. He says this, It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel be? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will, be the, what will become of the ungodly and of the sinner? Can I see a show of hands? How many of you are perfect? <laughs> Anybody? Not even one goof. All right, good. <laughs> even though we have been redeemed by Christ and his sufferings for us, we still remain imperfect on this side of eternity. We all have rough edges that needed to be sanded down, cracks that need to be mended, impurities that need to be filtered out. And one way the Lord does his work of refining us, we call that work sanctification, one way the Lord does that work is through suffering. Earlier in his, in his letter, Peter said this in chapter 1. He said, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes when it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Peter says that the trials that we go through, the hard times that we endure, the suffering that comes our way is one of the tools that the Lord uses in refining us, in sanctifying us. He uses those difficulties to make us come to the end of ourselves and realize that we cannot do it on our own. And we, he makes us fully depend, fully realize, fully depend, fully uh, commit ourselves to him when we suffer. There's one more reality we need to think about this morning, and I'll, we'll close with this. As you suffer, as you suffer, Peter would encourage you to keep entrusting your soul to your faithful creator. Entrust your soul to your faithful creator. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Nobody particularly enjoys suffering, do we? No, there are a few really odd people that seem to, uh, but the sort of suffering for the sake of Christ that we've been talking about isn't sought out by people. But yet as you go through difficult times in life now or in the future, Peter reminds you to put your hope, put your faith, put your trust in your creator. These verses from Isaiah 41 summarize it. The Lord is talking to his people and he says, You are my servant. I have chosen you. I have not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as you suffer for his sake, as you live in light of the end, let God's presence with you carry you through those things. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Father, help us to live our lives in light of the end. Your sending of your Son to make all things right or our own death, whichever may come first. Help us to live in light of that end. And help us as we go through life and we will have to endure suffering of some sort. We pray for our brothers and sisters across the globe who do suffer for your sake. We pray that you would strengthen them and encourage them. And Lord, as we see our culture and our society drift further away from your word, from Christian values and norms, we pray that you would give us boldness to stand according to the gospel, according to your word, to stand in truth and not cave, not give in to the society's pressures, but to endure suffering, entrusting our souls to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.